Welcome back to another episode of Counselor's Corner. Today, we're really lucky to be joined by Dr. Jason Hacker. Dr. Hacker is a licensed adolescent and adult psychologist with a private practice in Chicago. He specializes in treating anxiety disorders and addictive behaviors, including problematic video gaming and online media use. Dr. Hacker developed his clinical specialty, working and training in university counseling centers here in Chicago, as well as Washington, DC. Now in private practice, he helps clients learn to regulate emotional distress, develop healthy coping behaviors, and improve relationships. In addition, Dr. Hacker is a regular speaker at area schools, clinical training programs, and community events. He has held leadership positions within the American Psychological Association and has taught courses locally at Loyola University Chicago and in Washington, D.C. at American University. You may remember Dr. Hacker from uh, two panels here at AACA. First, our documentary Screenagers, and most recently this fall for our documentary Angst. Dr. Hacker, thanks for being here. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Dr. Hacker, in terms of your experience, we know you've been working in this field um, for quite a while now. What are some of the trends you're seeing around screen time specifically? I would say the biggest, uh, you know, biggest trend, and I think we're, we're seeing it, you know, not just clinically, but kind of in, in our culture, is the persistent engagement with technology and how central it's becoming to communication and how we relate and connect with others in our lives. And so doing mental health work, you're oftentimes... Uh, focusing on things related to relationships and connection in people's lives and how satisfied they're feeling. And interestingly enough, technology intersects a lot in that area. Mm -hmm. Uh, In addition, uh, it's become uh, another way or a tool that people use to respond or cope with the stresses in their lives. It's a comfort. It's something that... um, they may be able to sink into at times when other things aren't going well in their lives, which can be a good break in some situations. You know, having a Netflix night is not the end of the world, sure. but it can also lead into some trouble or problems for folks. Okay. Um, a lot of parents listening to this, what could they ask themselves to determine, you know, if their child is playing too many video games or even maybe struggling with an addiction? Yeah. I mean, so one of the pieces that I'm, you know, that I'm also seeing around technology is that people sort of feel resigned to it in many regards, that it's convenient, it feels necessary to kind of the modern world and how we're operating. And so there's that side of the perspective where people sort of feel like, okay, technology is going to always be there. Sure. Um, but there's also this other piece where I think there's a growing discomfort with uh, how much uh, technology is pervasive in different aspects of our lives. And people are starting to ask questions about, you know, does my time on social media actually make me feel satisfied or does it make me feel jealous of others' experiences and frustrated by, you know, the things that I'm seeing? If I'm already in a bad mood, does that change how technology impacts me when I look at it? And so for parents, I think there's a couple, I mean, there's reactions that I see and they kind of fall across the spectrum. It's very easy to go to either end. One being like, we're really resigned. It's just going to be this way. Mm-hmm. And the other end being well, this is sort of like a real big problem and we need to eliminate all technology or kids can't have any access to it, all that kind of stuff. And so as we talk about kind of what uh, what parents can do, I want to keep in mind that we're looking for a balance between these two ends. It's not that gaming and, and, and technology is all bad or all problematic. Um, it's sort of how you use it and are you kind of intentional with that, with that piece. Um, so when, when it comes down to what parents can ask themselves about what, what they're observing at home, 
I mean, one of the biggest pieces is how much time, energy, and effort is being put into tech use or parenting conversations around technology. Mm. So whether that's what you're actually observing in your child in terms of how much time they seem to be accessing technology or wanting access to technology, especially passive technology, video games, social media, internet searching, not for educational purposes, but just for free time engagement. Um, But also how much are you, and if you're co-parenting, uh, in conversation with your co-parent, how much is this becoming an issue where you feel like you're always asking, like, why are they always so frustrated about the technology when they, we ask them to turn it off? Why is it that, that there seems to be violations of the rules around technology? Like, if you're spending a lot of time talking about it as parents, um, I mean, one, might, one, it might be that you're just really intentional as parents, and that's really great. But if it's feeling like a, a point of frustration, you probably a sign that there's something more there than just the sort of typical, you know, things that parents mm-hmm. run into around gaming. So again, it's kind of looking at it on a scale. Um, but so I encourage families to track how much time. That's oftentimes a really great starting point to determine: is it too much video games? Is it too much internet time? Uh, is to just have them do some active tracking. Uh, mm-hmm. If your child is old enough, they can participate in that. Uh, you know, if they have a gaming device, oftentimes those have play timers on them that can record how long they're playing. You can use like an old-fashioned egg timer, mm-hmm. you, you know, used yeah. for uh, in your kitchen. Uh, and being intentional, even for a week or so, including weeknights and um, weekends, you really get a can get a good sense of. How pervasive is the engagement? How much of the time is really being spent? And that's a really good place to start okay. to know if your child is, is having issues. But then when you, you need to add on top of that uh, the behavioral aspects. And so when we think about problematic engagement with technology, it's not as much about how much you're, you're doing it as it is about how is it affecting you. Mm. So there's a, a few key symptoms or signs that I encourage parents to look out for. The first is preoccupation. How much time does it seem like your child is spending thinking about games or online time, YouTube, whatever it is that they enjoy doing? How much are they talking about it? How much are they thinking about it, even when they're away from it? Um, How central does it feel like it is to their experience, enjoyment? Um, How do they respond when it has to go off? You know, is that a become, is it a short burst of just frustration and, oh, I, you know, I really want to finish watching this show, or is it prolonged frustration, disengagement, sadness that you see from your child in response to having this thing removed from their purview? Um, and then how are, their, how are their behaviors with other interests shifting? Are they spending less time doing other things that they used to enjoy doing? Is it harder to get them to go out and do an activity with you that they used to enjoy doing or with their sibling that they used to enjoy? Are they less interested in spending time with friends? Um, And then if you've had consequences in the home related to gaming, like for violations of rules, lying about playing games or being online, is that enough to change behavior? Or do they keep going even though they're starting to face more and more trouble mm-hmm. at home or, more, or their grades are going further and further down? It tells you that something more is going on here than just a typical child who really enjoys the game or really enjoys being online. Jason, you gave us so much great feedback on you know, what parents can ask themselves and look for, including, you mentioned the violation of technology rules, a preoccupation with technology, some shifting interest away from things that they were into before, but what steps can parents take 
once they've determined this is too much, they're playing too many video games, there's too much screen time, what, what would you suggest? Yeah. Well, the first one's going to be hard for parents to hear, but I think the starting point is to look at family culture around technology use. Mm. If you're going to be intervening with your children and trying to set up a different relationship with technology for them, you have to be really honest about what your relationship is with technology yourself. Uh, all the members of the family matter, um, and kids observe and, and respond with behaviors that kind of match whatever the family culture is doing. And so uh, sometimes by, by engaging it that way, too, you also reduce a little bit of that initial defensiveness you might get from a child when you're saying like, hey, this seems like a problem. We used to always do it this way. Now I think we should do it that way. Um, most kids are going to be ne respond negatively to that. Um, and so if you include yourself in the process, that can make a big difference. And so, you know, things that families can look at is how, how present are screens at family functions, mm. family dinners, um, you know, where do people go on Saturday morning when there's no activity planned? You know, is everybody on their own device in the, around the living room? Uh, or are there other ways that the family tends to engage with technology that might be being observed and picked up by the kids at home? Um, and so, you know, if you're co-parenting, that's a great discussion to have before you ever even introduce that you're seeing it as a problem with your child. The two of you sitting down and sort of working that out and talking that through. Um, and then if, if that, if that uh, helps give you some sense of where you're at with technology, then the next step is probably a collaborative conversation with your kids. This is going to be age dependent, of course, right? I mean, if your child is six, seven, eight years old, early elementary school, uh, the conversation's probably going to be pretty cut and dry, sort of like, as a family, we're going to change this, and this is why we think this is a good thing, and this is why we think, you know, this is... Uh, something that would be better for our family. Uh, mom and dad are going to do this. We're going to ask you to do this. And here's why. We think it will be better for, uh, for the family to spend more time together. We think mm -hmm. that it'll uh, allow us to develop other interests and things that we like doing. And then technology will just be a part of what we do under a limited basis. If it's an older child, certainly if you're getting into adolescence, um, the conversation needs to be much more open in my opinion. You, you need to be willing to share what is your relationship with technology as a parent. What are the things you like about it? What are the things you don't really like about it? Are there ways that using technology sometimes makes you feel bad or that you turn to it when you do feel bad? Most of us do this at least a little bit. Or do you turn to it when you're really bored as, as opposed to looking and investigating other things to do? If you're doing that, your kid's probably doing it too. It's really normal for us mm -hmm. as human beings. And so if you can be open, again, that really helps decrease the defensiveness of an older child around their use and helps them see it as a part of a relationship, not just with the technology, but with you as a parent. Yeah. Um, and other things that parents can look at that I think are really important. One is it's really easy to use technology as a reward for good behavior. It's just like we with dessert or other things that are, you know, we, we want kids to engage with it in a limited way and we know they really enjoy or like. It's really easy to say, okay, if you clean your room, you get access to technology. I encourage parents to try to reverse that a little bit and sort of look at uh, let's have a technology agreement or policies in our house, family values around it. Um, and if there's good behavior, let's reward it with things that are not technology. So that technology is just like the thing that we kind of engage with in a really thoughtful way. It's not a part of this exchange that's always ongoing between mm -hmm. parents and kids. Um, there needs to be limits, even for adolescents. 
uh, around technology use. The, the, it's sort of a developmental process. And so if you've existed in a pretty free and open space with technology, you're not helping your child develop the ability to set their own limits later on in life. And that's really what our biggest goal is, you know, because there's going to be a time where parents aren't going to be there. Um, and so if you start, you need to start with parents, especially under the age of 13, need to be the ones developing in collaboration with their kids what the limits are and then enforcing the limits and guidelines. Mm -hmm. um, when you get to teenagers, your goal is to start to teach them how to self-enforce. That's challenging, and yeah. the more trouble your child is having with it, the longer it's going to be before you're going to get to that stage. Um, but that is ultimately the goal for families. Um, and so a lot of this re revolves around the idea of having some kind of contract, some kind of agreement that everybody has seen, spoken into, and signed. It doesn't mean that kids have the same say as their parents, but they need to have had some ability to speak into whatever is on that contract. Jason, can you talk a little bit about what you think some of the very important components should be in the contract? Yeah, absolutely. So what I encourage families to do is to, just as they've had this collaborative conversation about tech use and family values, to sort of start with that in a contract. So outlay what are sort of the general family principles and values that are underlying why you're doing the contract in the first place. So. If the family's values are to develop sort of diverse interests, to spend quality time together, uh, to uh, encourage one another to develop a wide range of skills, whatever it looks like, that is informing why the contract is there. And again, for kids, it's really helpful for them to understand the why behind mm -hmm. what we're doing. Um, and then start with as many uh, agreements that all family members can participate in. Uh, so this would be things like uh, tech-free dinners, uh, tech-free outings or vacations with family. If you're going to go out together and do something as a family, can we leave phones at home? If you're on vacation, maybe we hold it to you know an hour a day that everyone has access to technology. And again, you're doing it all together. Uh, maybe you're going to have to bring one phone along or something like that, but kind of agreeing to keep it in your pocket during the time mm -hmm. that you're doing something together as a family. Public location for charging devices is also something that everyone can participate in. And that may mean some behavioral adjustment for parents too, if they're using their phones as alarm clocks or other things. But having kind of a centralized location where all the chargers are kept, everybody brings their laptops, tablets, cell phones to that location to charge in the evening. There's gonna be a cutoff time for kids and so they need to have it there by that time. That's part of the rule, that's part of the agreement. But parents are also putting them there so that when the kids get up in the morning, they're seeing that even though parents are probably using technology devices after kids are in bed, they're also seeing that their parents aren't taking them to bed with them, aren't uh, operating and using them through, them through the night, things that we wouldn't want them to be doing themselves. Uh, with younger kids as well, all screen usage, having a contract where all screen usage is taking place in a public setting or public place. That doesn't mean someone needs to be sitting over their shoulder while they're doing it. It just looks like somebody uh, it taking place at the dining room table so that anytime someone could walk by and sort of see what the engagement is, if they're watching videos on an iPad, that's happening on the couch. It's not happening in their bedroom behind closed doors. A couple other things for parents to consider. One is uh, having a social media behavioral agreement of some kind. It looks something like uh, we agree not to say something harmful or hurtful 
uh, make statements that we wouldn't make directly to a person, uh, lie or misrepresent aspects of ourselves online. Uh, so sort of the same kinds of agreements you might ask your child to do in terms of their relationships with you or with their sibling, just asking them to agree to do the same thing on their social media accounts. Parents should have access to usernames and passwords. There's a point probably in adolescence, especially if your child is showing a lot of responsibility across not just tech engagement, but other aspects of their lives that you're going to start to migrate to having some accounts that are purposed to them learning how to manage and navigate on their own. But up until that point, it's really important that parents have access and that it's really clear to the child. I have this access. Mm. I can use it when I want to use it. Uh, if there's any violations of rules, I have the ability to restrict the use of this particular media or this particular video gaming device. Um, and, and certainly controls over spending, which is another area where kids can easily flip into making mistakes without, uh, even if they don't have problems with video games or other things in a more general sense, it's easy to slip into spending some money impulsively to mm. get a new character for a game or, or sure. access to something that you want. Um, and then the last piece is there needs to be spelled out incentives and punishments for violation of the contract. And I strongly encourage parents to spend a lot of time thinking about the incentive side. So are there little gestures or small things that a child can access if they align with the contract during the course of a week? It can be as simple as choosing the family movie on Friday night or uh, selecting the outing on Saturday afternoon, um, within reason of course, but that, that these little opportunities to sort of see a benefit of a behavioral choice are powerful for kids because we're wanting to teach them how to delay immediate gratification for something that might be rewarding in the future. Uh, so even small gestures of uh, incentives can make a real big difference. Jason, I'd like you to talk a little bit about the argument that children sometimes make about the benefit of using technology mm -hmm. in terms of social interaction. I've heard many of our students make that comment and I hear parents say, yeah, but this gives them an opportunity to have friends, and they actually talk about friends that are online as if they're really deep friendships. Mm -hmm. So can you talk about the benefit of that versus the limitations of not having face-to-face -face friendships? Yeah, absolutely. So kids are right in some sense, right? In terms of uh, belonging or some baseline level of acceptance and connection, there does seem to be some evidence that uh, social connection through media can benefit things like self-esteem uh, or, or well-being for a child, particularly those who may feel otherwise marginalized um, or uh, they are not, their interpersonal community feels restricted in some way by something that's going on in their life. Uh, so it is, it is an important piece of, of a child's experience. Interestingly enough, though, the research really shows that uh, the, the students or the young people that benefit the most from the social, the social benefits of technology use are those who already have a strong community or connection or relationships with uh, people in their lives and they're using their, their social media maybe to ex or, or gaming online with friends as a way to ex slightly expand that network or to stay really connected to the people that they are otherwise feeling connected to. What, then when you look at folks who are feeling isolated 
in other areas of their life, they don't show the same level of benefit or gain from the relationships that they're having online. And I think this speaks a lot to there's a um, both a skill set development that happens uh, in person that you can't really replicate online, and there's typically uh, an anxiety aspect here that is affecting the child. It may not be that they meet criteria for social anxiety, but there's something there that is making them feel internally distressed, uncomfortable, that there we want them to try to overcome and. Technology does a nice job of lowering that barrier, which is really helpful for starting points for young people. But if we want someone to be able to accomplish the, the next steps or stages in their social relationship development, they need to be challenged to face the things that they're anxious about. And we want to do that with a lot of support, uh, with uh, some skill development and teaching. Oftentimes counselors can be involved in that process. It's not like we're going to cut off a kid from their online life and then say, you need to go make friends. It needs to be a graduated process, but it's really important that, that those later steps are happening because otherwise kids can't internalize a sense of, I can do this despite the fact that I feel uncomfortable, anxious, or it's hard to really show who I am in front of other people. Uh, because the anxiety may never dissipate completely, but the way that we see people operate with it better is that they feel confident that they can do it despite how they feel. So Jason, You've talked about the benefit of social connection. What are some of the other benefits of gaming? So with gaming in particular, one of the things I see is that kids really can develop a sense of competence or skill or ability within the context of whatever the game uh, is designed to do. And oftentimes that can involve things like sophisticated problem solving or creativity, even teamwork. Again, it, it varies across the different kinds of games that you're playing, but oftentimes uh, there can be some real development of kind of intellectual skills that we want to see for young people uh, and it can be reflected in the game. And then if they're making progress and oftentimes the progress is pretty quickly rewarded in the game, it can feel pretty reinforcing. Very different sometimes than the way learning in other formats can feel where the benefit really comes with mastery and mastery really takes quite a long time. You're not always getting as many reinforcements along the way, whereas games are really designed to kind of reinforce skill development or improvement along the way. And so that sense of competency is, uh, is, a, is a powerful thing and really it does matter and it can be a positive thing. Um, in addition, there's good research now to show that games that are developed with an educational goal or with a pro-social goal seem to actually show some impact in how people think about their lives, think about their behaviors, or, or learn. And so there's a lot of resource available in games. It's thinking, again, intentionally about what is the content of the game, what skills does it require, and uh, is it something that they're sharing or experiencing with other people? Jason, this has been really helpful, and I'm sure our parents will really appreciate it. In your practice working with children, do you see an increase in mental health issues as a result of excessive screen time? So what I, what I see with uh, young people that I'm seeing who are coming in and, and gaming is a consideration or a concern is typically they are also struggling with a mental health disorder. I want to be really careful to, to point out that it doesn't mean that the screen time is necessarily causing the mental health issue. And our research kind of pans that out as well. We can see a correlation between the two, excessive screen use, mental health disorders, 
we can't tell you which one comes first. We need more longitudinal research to really get a sense of what is the impact on somebody over time and exposure. But it's important to note that those who do come in or are struggling with this typically, in my practice, present with uh, a comorbid depressive disorder or anxiety disorder. Can be generalized anxiety, could be social anxiety, uh, even OCD. Uh, typically, uh, there's at least one or the other present, the depression or the anxiety. Uh, and then the other most common thing that I see is attention deficit disorder. And I think that really speaks a lot to the neural organization of, of someone who is struggling with attention deficit disorder. The high stimulation experiences are extraordinarily rewarding mm -hmm. and easy to get into for folks with uh, attention deficit and executive functioning issues. And so games or technology really feeds into that in, in a very distinct kind of way. And so when you're working with somebody who's really struggling to regulate their gaming, there's oftentimes either a neurological aspect that we need to help someone develop some of the executive functioning skills to, to regulate what's going on, or there's a mood disorder and possibly the gaming is interplaying with that either as a coping mechanism, or it could be that they've become really restricted and so in their lives around the game and therefore they're feeling depressed and not that they're not doing well in other parts of their lives. Um, the research really pans out that there's a very distinct difference between those young people who play games or use screen times one to two hours in the course of a weekday versus those mm -hmm. that are that fall in what we call the high range which would be like six or seven hours plus on weekday use of technology and for those folks they're twice as likely to report low well-being, uh, dissatisfaction with relationships. Um, they have difficulty staying calm, difficulty completing tasks. They show kind of low curiosity. Jason, that was a really interesting description of the mental health challenges that seem to coexist with gaming addiction or video game addiction. Can you talk a little bit more as you were talking about ADHD, what is the impact on the brain of a video game addiction? Yeah, so what the research is showing is for, for those who have excess, excessive either video game use or internet use, uh, when they do fMRI and MRI studies, what they're showing is uh, a noticeable sort of uh, neurological phenomena that affects the frontal lobe and the parietal lobe and some of the connections that run from those two lobes to subcortical uh, functioning within the brain. What we know about those neurological pathways is that they're d directly connected with executive functioning. The other area of the brain where we see effect is reduced white matter in the amygdala, which is involved in emotion regulation. So those seem to be sort of two of the core ways that we can see a direct neurological connection. For those who are gaming a lot or using a lot of internet, it's very often that they're experiencing these kinds of neurological functioning issues. Again, we can't determine which came first, so it's important to note that that may just be pointing at people who are much more at risk for developing problems with games, um, or it could be an interaction effect where by engaging more and more, you see a change in the neurological structure or functioning of the brain. The other piece that's interesting to note, there's still a lot of debate about whether or not video games or internet can be truly addictive in the way that we understand addiction with the addiction science research. But some of, some of the interesting research coming out does show that when you show somebody who self-identifies as struggling with gaming, 
they uh, you show them an image of a video game character or video game uh, related item, they show the same neurological pathways lighting up as if you show somebody with an addiction issue to a substance, their substance of choice. And so we know that the same dopaminergic pathways are being activated by gaming and could then uh, create this situation where it is very rewarding to engage with uh, the game of choice or the technology of choice. Jason, this has been really helpful and informative, and I know that you've given our listeners so much to think about in terms of screen time and steps that they can take in their home as it relates to their child and technology use. Given all that, parents might still have questions and might be interested in learning more about this topic. How can our listeners connect with you to um, learn more about this? Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm glad we've had this opportunity to talk a little bit about how this affects people's lives. Uh, if you want to connect with me, there's really the two best ways are uh, through my website. It's uh, www.jasonhackerphd.com. And then I have a fe- Facebook web uh, page as well. So through Facebook, it's Jason Hacker PhD is the uh, business site that you can access as well. Both of those will let you know sort of how to get into contact with me. Um, I'm happy to answer questions for families or certainly consult if you're having concerns about a child or a family member. That's great. Well, thank you so much for being here. We really appreciate it. We really appreciate your on- ongoing collaboration and Look forward, maybe next year, for you being involved in our new documentary on our panel. Thanks very much. I've been happy to be here.